Pray for me, this is the last week of college classes, and so then we go into a vacation time, which is good, and I'm going to go into full-time writing on Monday. So uh, please pray, pray for me as I'm writing. Now, take your Bible, look at uh, chapter 24. If you're visiting with us, we are going verse by verse in our Bible study in chapter 24, and last week we dealt with verses 1 through 12, in which the women go to the tomb of Jesus and discover that it's empty. They wonder what happened to the body, and then an angel comes and tells them that he's been risen, uh, as he said he would be. And so they run back and they tell the apostles, and the apostles don't believe them. They say, well, that's just a bunch of wives' tales. Uh, you had a hallucination. Uh, that's not true. Peter runs back to the tomb, finds the tomb empty, but he's not convinced that Jesus is risen from the dead. He just thinks that uh, the body's been taken and relocated. So what we have at the end of verse 12, basically, is that uh, there's a great disappointment. See, they do not believe that the Messiah is going to be defeated. Uh, they believe that the Messiah was going to conquer Rome and restore the kingdom to Israel. Uh, he wasn't going to die, and yet he's died, and so they're very disappointed. They do not believe in the resurrection. That's the thing that you have to get over. Most of us, when we read this, think that the, the apostles are expecting the resurrection. Let me say this this strongly as I can. No, they were not. Okay? Now, I know you still don't believe me, but you will see that that is true. Okay? They were not expecting a resurrection. In fact, some of them are so disappointed that they just start heading back home and get back to their normal lives. So we pick up with that in verse 13. Now, what we're going to see, we're going to see four things happening here. First of all, we're going to see that these two people, which, and they're just... I'll read verse 13. It says, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day, this is on a Sunday, to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. So these are two Passover pilgrims who were expecting Jesus to overthrow the Roman government. Instead he dies, and they're just heading back home, and they're going to get back on with their daily life. Now, we're going to see in verses 13 through 24, they're going to have an encounter on the road to Emmaus with a stranger, someone they don't know. And he's a very peculiar person. So that's verses 13 through 24. And then in verses 25 through 27, we're going to, the stranger is going to expound the scripture to them. Okay, so he'll expound the scripture. And then in verses 28 through 33, they're going to have an unbelievable experience during a supper hour. Okay? And then they're going to be so excited by the experience that they're going to return to Jerusalem that night to tell the apostles what has happened. So in verse 13, it says, Two of them, now what I want you to ask yourself, who are these people? Notice all you have is the pronoun, them, and the number. There are two. Two of whom? Well, back in verse 9 it tells us. <clears throat> then they returned to the tomb and they told these things to the eleven. As the women tell the events to the eleven, Judas not being there, and to the rest. That's the rest of Jesus' disciples. They're in the upper room. How many are there up there? About 120. We know that in the book of Acts. Uh, Luke, when he finishes his last verse in the Gospel of Luke, takes his pen and starts writing the book of Acts. He says there are 120 people in this upper room. So, in verse 13, two of them, two of those disciples, 
were traveling. When were they traveling? That same day, that Sunday morning. Where were they traveling? To a village called Emmaus, which is described seven miles from Jerusalem. It's in the northwest direction of Jerusalem. And it goes on to say, and they talked together. These companions were in a deep discussion. What were they talking about? All these things that had happened. What things? Uh, how they thought Jesus was the Messiah. How the Romans put Him on a cross. How the woman found an empty tomb. How they came back with this wives' tale. They were discussing all these things as they're walking along. It'd be just like you driving in your car with a friend and uh, you're having a discussion as you're riding down the road. Okay? That's what's going on, going on here. Uh, they are... Look, they don't believe in a resurrection. If they believed in a resurrection, what would they have been doing? Would they have been going home? No, I think they have been staying in Jerusalem to see the resurrected Jesus. See, it shows you that they are going back. And these uh, guys do not think that Jesus is raised from the dead. And so it was, verse 15 says, while they conversed, while they were conversing, and reasoned, trying to figure out what's going on here, that Jesus Himself drew near and went with them. Now, in Bible times, it was very common for pilgrims, say Passover pilgrims, or pilgrims going to some feast, to uh, join up with each other in traveling. So it would not be unusual for a few people to be walking down the road and somebody says, hey, can I join you? They did that for safety reasons. That would make sense, wouldn't it? Uh, so, the more that we're together, the less chance of them being robbed. Now, Luke puts an emphasis here in verse 15 on the word himself. Notice it says that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Uh, Luke wants us to know that this isn't some ghostly figure. This is the same Jesus who died on the cross, uh, shows up on this road, now, he tells us that. It's that same Jesus. Jesus himself. Okay? He lets us in on that, but these strangers don't recognize who this is. Which says if this is Jesus in a resurrected body and they don't recognize him, then something has changed. Something has changed. So I don't go for all this stuff. Well, will we recognize our loved ones when we get to heaven? Ah, of course you will. You know. If you recognize them down here, you'll recognize them up there. All those kinds of answers. Uh, did they recognize Jesus? They didn't recognize Jesus. Had they walked with Jesus for three years? Had they gone to the Passover feast with Jesus? Had they gone from Galilee? And you know, Yes, they had, they had seen Jesus many times. So... <clears throat> Don't just give these trite answers. Trite answers don't really satisfy anyone. They might satisfy curiosity, but they may not be the truth. Okay? So listen very carefully. Look what happens. They have this encounter now with this stranger. We're going to call him a stranger because it says in verse 16, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. They uh, do not recognize Him. And He said to them, well, what kind of conversation is this that 
you have one with another as you walk and are what? Yeah, as you walk and are said. Now, we know the topic of the conversation. They were discussing those things that had just happened. Now we're let in on the mood of these two people. And the mood is that their countenance is downtrodden. They are said. One thing we know is they do not believe that Jesus is alive. Because if they believed that Jesus was alive, they wouldn't be sad. What would they be? They'd be glad. They said, don't think that everybody's expecting a resurrection. You're expecting a resurrection because 2,000 years later you've been taught about it. That it has already happened. You read it in Scripture. But in real time, as these guys are walking and this stranger comes up and it's Jesus Himself, they don't recognize Him at this point. Okay? And uh, there's a reason they don't recognize him. One is that their eyes are blinded, but there's another thing. And it is that even though it's the same body that went into the ground that comes out of the ground, that body's been changed. Remember a few years ago when I did a Sunday school lesson here? That's to be five or six years ago now. And I passed out seeds. Who remembers me passing out seeds on the cart? See, some of you remember that. And I said, what's that seed right there? And you had no idea what it was. And I said, well, that's an okra seed. And when you plant the seed in the ground and it dies and it comes up, does it look like the seed? No, it looks totally different. And there's a reason why things look different when they're resurrected out of the earth. It's because even though it comes from the same seed, there's a difference to it. And so they do not recognize him. And he says, well, what are you talking about? Why are you so sad? In other words, it looks like you've lost your best friend. And they had lost their best friends. So look at their response. And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Where do you come from, buddy? With your head been buried in the sand? Did you? Where have you been? You know? Have you not known the things that happened there in these days? Days, and the answer is, he goes. I imagine he says, "What's that?" Now, this proves a couple things. First of all, it proves that Jesus' death was big news. Every Jew in Jerusalem knew about the death of Jesus. It was big news. And only a stranger, an outsider, would be oblivious to what went on. Okay? Because any knowledgeable Jew certainly would have known what had happened. But this guy doesn't seem to know what has happened. Now the irony, you want to know the irony? You're always hunting for these little devices. The irony in this passage is that in reality, Jesus is the only one that really knows what has happened. Did you hear that? You mean you don't know what has happened? What have you had your head buried? He could have said, well, I had my whole body buried. But <laughs> See, Jesus really knows what has happened. He's the only one that really knows what has happened. Now look at his reaction, verse 19. He said to them, notice he plays dumb, what things? He wants to hear it from their perspective. 
And so they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. So they said, uh, this guy was a prophet. We know he was a prophet because he spoke the words of God. And we know he was a prophet because he operated in the power of God. He was like Elijah and Elisha and these great prophets of the past. And, verse 20, how the chief priests and our rulers, that would be the synagogue rulers, the Sanhedrin synagogue rulers, chief priests, temple workers, delivered him to be condemned. We know they delivered him to the Romans to be condemned to death and crucified him. Crucified him as what? Now they identified he was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, but he's crucified as what? Right? He is the king of the Jews, but what did the Romans crucify him for? The insurrection. The Jews considered him a false messiah, a false prophet, and so they delivered him and they crucified him. They condemned him. Now look at verse 21. But we, now you see the difference? They, this is what the official response was. The official response is they believed that he was a false messiah. Somebody who was trying to overthrow the Roman government. We wanted, they wanted to get rid of him. They didn't want any trouble. But we were hoping that he was he who would, look at this, redeem Israel. We thought that he was the real thing. That he was going to come and just set up the kingdom of God in Israel and this golden age, this millennial age, would uh, occur. But instead, he was put to death. Our hopes were dashed. And... Uh, you want to know why we're sad? That's why. That's why we're sad. Yes, we did lose our best friend. We thought he was the Messiah. He's a good guy. May even been a prophet. But he's not the Redeemer that we thought he was. So we're getting back to our normal life. So, <clears throat> they go on and they say in verse 21, Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since all these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. See, we were there when they came back to the upper room. When they did not find his body, they came saying that he had, that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us, like Peter and John, went to the tomb and found it as the woman had said. But him they did not see. In other words, yes, the women were right about the tomb. There was no resurrection. They didn't see him. So they didn't put credence in the women's report. Okay, uh, They weren't looking for a resurrection. Uh, when, the women, when the tomb was empty, they didn't go, maybe he is alive. Oh, he, he might be alive. Maybe they're right. They didn't do that. Peter comes back. Says, well, the tomb's empty, don't know what happened. You know the women didn't have a vision, that's nonsense. These guys say, yeah, we're going to go on home. They didn't believe in a resurrection. Why did they not believe in a resurrection? Because they weren't expecting a crucifixion to begin with. 
the Messiah would do what? Would the Messiah die and be raised according to their understanding? No, the Messiah would do what? Overthrow the Roman government and set up the kingdom of God on earth. They weren't expecting a resurrection because they weren't expecting the Messiah to die. He was supposed to conquer Rome. So now we have this stranger's response. They've told the story probably in graphic form. It may have gone on for 45 minutes as they're telling the story. And then look at the stranger's response. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. Look at this. Foolish ones and slow in heart to believe in some that the prophets have spoken. See what it says there? No, it doesn't say that, does it? Foolish of heart, foolish of foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice. First, he calls them foolish ones. This has to do with their understanding. Well, that's a foolish thought. Has to do with their mind. Foolish one. They have a misunderstanding. They're foolish because they don't believe in all that the prophets have spoken. They only believe in part of it. And then he calls them slow of heart. So the first has to do with the mind. They're foolish. They have a wrong understanding. And the second has to do with their heart or their emotions. There was no they, they didn't search the scriptures the way they should have. So they don't believe in all that the prophets have spoken. They only believe in part of it. What part do they believe? That the Messiah will do what? Set up the kingdom of God. What part don't they believe? That the Messiah will die and be raised from the dead. Okay? Uh, as a result of that, because they're slow of heart and they're foolish in their understanding, they have missed the biggest event in history. A man has come out of the tomb never to die again. Okay? Now, what we have is that Jesus now goes, a stranger now gives an exposition of Scripture. He expounds the Scripture. Look at what it says in verse uh, 20, 26. First of all, he says this. Ought not the Messiah to have suffered? He, he asked them a question. You don't believe all that the prophets have said. Ought not the Christ or the Messiah to have suffered? And the answer is what? Yes. According to the prophets, he should have suffered. See? Suffered these things. And then he would enter into his glory. That's when he is, becomes a king. He has to suffer first. So he says, you didn't believe that in the prophets. And so beginning at Moses and all the prophets, now notice the issue is the prophets. They don't believe all the prophets have spoken. Uh, believe what the prophets have spoken. So beginning at Moses and all the prophets. So he starts at Moses and he goes all the way through Malachi. He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, what he does is he does a Bible study. And I imagine this takes some time, doesn't it? He goes into uh, Genesis, and he talks about a lamb that's slain, and he talks about how the Messiah will be a lamb that's led to slaughter. You know, he goes into Exodus, and he talks about how just as Moses led the Jews 
out of Egyptian bondage. So the Messiah would come and lead the Jews out of bondage as well. And he goes through all the scriptures and he explains that. Now it says, Luke tells us that he's talking about himself. But he doesn't say, hey, all this is about me. No, I'm the, I'm the Messiah. He doesn't say that. He's just talking. Even though he's talking about himself, he doesn't reveal who, him, who he is. He's saying, let me tell you about the Messiah. And he goes through and he gives all this in the scripture. Probably, uh, you know, quotes uh, Psalm 22. He probably quotes Psalm 110. He probably quotes Isaiah 53. Probably quotes uh, Zechariah 12, 10. They shall see him whom they pierced. All these kinds of things. And in these scriptures, he proves that the Messiah, by necessity, had to die first. And then be raised in order to redeem Israel. I'm convinced that when he got finished, they say, man, now this guy, I don't know who this guy is, a stranger. Uh, but he really knows the Bible. Okay? He really knows the Bible. They probably think he's some rabbi of some sort. Okay? No, look, they still don't know it's Jesus. Not yet do they know it's Jesus. But this Bible study is having a profound impact on them as we're going to see. Now, just let me say something just off the cuff here. Because there's a lesson that we can learn. You can see how your theology can get in the way of truth. Watch how your theology can get in the way of understanding Scripture. Had these people under had these people read the Scriptures? Of course they had read the Scriptures. Did they understand the Scriptures? No, they didn't understand the Scriptures. Why did they not understand the Scriptures? Because they had a theology. They had a preconceived idea. They operated on a presupposition of what the Messiah should be like. And so when they read that scripture, it didn't fit in with their theology, and so they just skipped over those verses. And you have to be very careful that you don't allow your theology to get in the way of understanding and properly interpreting the scripture. Because once you're committed to a certain position, you will... Hold on to that position for dear life. You will hold on to your theology for dear life and you'll protect it as, it as if it is the truth. And your theology may be the truth or it may not be the truth. It's only the truth if it comes in line with the Scripture. And so we have people that are dispensationalists and guess what they do? They interpret the entire Scripture through some sort of grid, a dispensationalist grid. And as a result, they miss a whole bunch. And you have other people that are hold a covenant theology, and they interpret the scripture through covenants. And other people hold to a different kind of theology. And guess what? Their theology puts blinders on their eyes so they can't read the scriptures correctly. And it skews their understanding of the scriptures, and they misinterpret the scripture. They were looking for a conqueror, and their conqueror was conquered. And now they're downcast. Because what happened didn't fit their theology. And so the stranger has to set them straight. Okay? So he starts at Moses and he goes all the way through Malachi and he explains to them those scriptures concerning himself. How the Messiah had to die, how he had to be raised, and how he would end up establishing a kingdom. I'm not sure they're convinced at that point. Here he's teaching them, and they're listening. I don't hear anybody jumping up and down saying, Oh, now we understand. Oh, now we get it. They still don't get it. You know why? 
Because a suffering Messiah is an oxymoron. That's like a frightened ghost. Ghosts aren't frightened, they frighten other people. Except for Casper, the friendly ghost. See, Casper is an oxymoron, isn't it? He's a ghost that's frightened. You don't expect to see a ghost that gets frightened. They're not expecting a Messiah who's going to suffer and die. To them, that's an oxymoron because they have this preconceived theology and they can't grasp it. So what do we do? Well, we just deal with the text and we let the text speak. And we grapple with the text and we wrestle with the text. And we take our theology and we throw it away in a sense and we just struggle with that text and let God's text speak to us because that's His inspired work. So we want to hear God speaking, not what some theologian has said. Now look at verse 28. Then they drew near to the village. Now that village is about seven, seven and a half miles from Jerusalem. So I don't know how long that would take walking on foot. But imagine even today in good shoes and you're walking briskly. You can make a mile in 15 or 20 minutes. Say that's the average person. And let's say that would take you at least two or three hours uh, with, you know, modern tennis shoes. And you're on a track and the roads aren't bumpy. But how about if you have sandals on your feet? And the roads are bumpy. I imagine, and maybe it even rains a little bit, you know, it's slippery. I imagine it would take four hours or six hours. That's how long this trip has taken. Maybe even seven hours. And finally, they draw near the village in verse 28 where they were going, showing meaning their destination, that's home. And he indicated that he would have gone further. So they said, well, we've reached our destination. So, well, it's been nice to meet you. Talk to you. And, uh, but they constrained him. They insisted, saying, uh, Abide with us. For it was toward the evening. And the day is spent far, far spent. And so he went in and he stayed with them. Now this is an example of Middle Eastern hospitality. This is just the way people acted. This was not abnormal. This was a normal thing. To let this stranger go on by himself uh, when it's dark was not the way people treated people, especially in Bible days and especially not in the Middle East. They would uh, welcome you into their home and give you a hot meal, uh, give you a bed to sleep in until the next morning. So this is just what was called common courtesy. We don't have that today like that too often but uh, in our country, but that's the way they, they acted in the Middle East, at least back then. So now they've reached their destination, their home. Okay. So look what happens. Look at verse 13. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them, as he reclines at the table, this stranger took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them and then, and then their eyes were opened and they knew him. Now, the amazing thing is that here's Jesus, a guest, and he sits down at the table, and he takes the bread, and he breaks it. Hey, let's break the bread. He breaks the bread, and he blesses it. Father, we thank you for this bread, for you are the creator of all good things, or whatever. And he passes it out. Now, why would he do that? Uh, 
I don't think that he did it that way. I think probably they recognized that this guy is some sort of religious man, maybe uh, a rabbi, and they said, Rabbi or teacher or, uh, hey, would you mind uh, praying over the bread? And so he says, sure, I'll be glad to do it. And so he breaks the bread. And when he breaks the bread, something happens, and he prays, and he says, Father, bless this bread. And then it says, verse 31, Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And so these spiritual blinders that were on their eyes that prevented them from recognizing Jesus for four hours, or five hours, or six hours, or seven hours, suddenly dropped by the wayside, and they recognized the stranger as Jesus. And then look what happens. And he vanished from their sight. Now, if he had that bread in his hands and said that he vanished, I guess the bread just dropped on the table. <laughs> I don't know how that worked. But I know one thing. It was a shock. And we can't even grasp how scary that would be. You know what it would be like? It would be like me being up here speaking right now and suddenly I'm gone and my Bible, all you see is my Bible and the pages are starting to go like this and end up on the ground. And I'm gone, and you figured the rapture's come, and you've been left behind. <laughs> now, see, we can't grasp, that's why you have to say something as crazy as that to get, get into the scene and realize what's happening. But just like that, you know, he's gone. He just disappears. But what happens? They recognize him. They say, that's Jesus. Now, can you imagine this? Just think about this. At this point, you have to have 10,001 questions, don't you? Why didn't we recognize him before? Uh, how can he disappear? Uh, was this just a vision? Uh, were we hallucinating? Uh, you know, what are you going to be doing at this point? You're going to evaluate it. So look what they do. They do evaluate it. They said one to another. And I imagine that this is a, was not like a one-sentence evaluation that Luke gives us. I imagine they spent some time thinking this thing through. Uh, they said to one another, now watch very carefully, did our heart, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Now the first thing they do is they evaluate that trip from Jerusalem to Emmaus on the road and they say something's happened to him. Hey, you know, something was happening when he was talking to me. Hey, what's happening to me? Yeah, and when he did the scriptures, he said, our hearts were, what was it? Our hearts were burned within us. John Wesley said that, uh, that his heart was strangely warmed when he walked into the Altersgate meeting house. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, was uh, an Episcopal priest. Uh, from the Church of England, Church of England priest, and came to America, the American colony of Georgia, to preach the gospel to the Indians, to save the Indians, back in the 1700s. And he said, I came to America to save the Indians, but who will save me? He was lost to the goose in the snowstorm. Don't know what happened, but there was some hanky-panky going on with some one of the girls in Georgia, one of the colonists. And the girl's father, with a shotgun, basically uh, ran Wesley out of the New World. And with the father behind him, Wesley hopped on a ship 
and got back to England as fast as he could. Uh, it's sort of a, all we know is that he was forced to leave and involved the girl. We don't have any of the other details. But he was totally, just like these two people, totally downcast. He said, who will save me? And uh, one day he walked into the Aldersgate meeting house and the person behind the podium at that church was reading the introduction, listen to this, the introduction to Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. And he said, and suddenly I saw it, the just shall live by faith. And he realized all of his works and all of his efforts were a waste of time. And he said, just like that, I was converted. And he says, my heart was strangely warm. Uh, basically, that's what they're saying. Our heart burned within us while he talked with us on the road. Now, we need to know a couple things. We need to notice a few things. Notice what burned was heart. Now, this doesn't mean they had heart burn. Okay? It was their heart. Their heart was a flame. Okay? I want you to notice the contrast from the beginning of the journey to the end. In verse 25, notice what Jesus said about their heart. What was it? Slow of heart. Sluggish heart. Heart that could hardly move. No motivation. Just a sluggishness there. Now look what's happening. <clears throat> Turn that engine on. It's burning. The burners have been put on and that heart's burning. There's been a change here. Uh, you see a change from their sadness to their excitement. Or when you say they're excited now. At the beginning they were sad and now guess what? They're excited. Uh, notice how the scripture ministered to them. It says the, our hearts burned when he opened the scriptures to us. It's very important. But also I want you to notice that had they not invited Jesus into their house, they would have missed this whole thing. Just think about that. Had they not welcomed him into the house and said, well, nice meeting you, had a good time, uh, we'll consider the scriptures that you've said, uh, they would have missed this whole experience. They would have been totally downcast the next morning. Okay? So they discuss this and they realize that Jesus is alive. And they're so excited that they have to share this. And it's a spontaneous sharing. Look what it says. So they rose up in verse 33. That very hour, that means as soon as they got this discussion out of the way, and they returned to Jerusalem. They didn't consider the lateness of the hour. They wouldn't let Jesus go on the road because it was getting late, but guess what? They didn't consider the lateness of the hour. They didn't consider the danger ahead. They got were so excited that they got up and said, we need to get back to Jerusalem and tell everybody what's happened. Now, if that trip from Jerusalem to Emmaus took seven hours, I'll say that this trip from Emmaus to Jerusalem took closer to seven minutes. Okay? That's how excited they are. Uh, just like the women. When the women saw the tomb was empty and the angel said he's risen, it says they were so excited they ran back and wanted to tell everybody. When you realize that Jesus is alive, you will want to tell somebody. You should be so excited about that. So they rose up, they went to Jerusalem, and the amazing thing is when they get back there, they discover that the disciples already know that Jesus is alive. Look what it says in verse 33. So they rose up that very hour, they returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathering together, saying, Look, 
The Lord is risen indeed. And he has appeared to Simon. Now I don't know when he appeared to Simon, but I know one thing. He hadn't appeared to Simon when they left. And he couldn't have appeared to Simon while he was walking that seven hours on the road with them. So when did he appear to Simon? There's only one answer after he disappeared. <laughs> he had to be. He had to appear. How long did that take him to get back there? Felt like that. <laughs> and he appeared to Simon. Now, as far as we know, Simon Peter is the only individual apostle that Jesus ever appeared to. And I guess that's because Simon denied the Lord, and Jesus and Simon went and saw the tomb, and it was empty, and went back to that, and mean anything. His body was probably stolen. And so Jesus appears to Simon. Now look at verse 35. And they told about the things that had happened to them on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. Now I believe this was an all-night meeting at this point. I think this thing probably just went right on through the night and they were talking about this. And these men's lives will never be the same. Okay? Because they've encountered the resurrected Jesus. And I know one thing. I know one thing. Their theology has changed. Would you agree that, to that? I think their theology has changed. Okay? Now let me give you some lessons from all of this. Number one. Okay? Number one. Jesus reveals himself to ordinary people. Okay? Uh... Why did he appear to these two people? One of these guys, we don't even know the name. We don't even know them. We know one's name is Cleopas, and it's the only time the name is mentioned in the Bible. And, and we don't know who he is. And the other one, his name isn't even mentioned. Just ordinary people. Okay? Why does Jesus appear just to these two? People that aren't important. Because they're important to him, and we're important to him. He doesn't only appear to Peter. He appears to ordinary people. Okay? Because everyone is important to him. Now another thing that I want you to notice in this passage is that Jesus is with them even when they don't recognize him. And Jesus is with you when you don't recognize him. I don't understand how that happens, but he said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He is with us when we don't understand. Yeah. Now, I'll tell you, he's disappeared right now. I can't see him. But I want you to know he's here. And if he wanted to, he could show himself. Okay. Uh, I don't think, that, I think he, he stays hidden in the sense that he doesn't want us to know him by the, according to the flesh. He wants us to, to know him according to, according to faith. He wants us to follow him. We have this word right here that he did appear in a, some sort of physical form to these people. We need to take the word at face value and believe that, and we need to accept the fact that he indeed uh, is alive. Okay? Uh, another thing I want you to get, and I think this is, this is the main thing. When I looked at this passage, I, I said to myself, uh, when this story is told, what does Luke want us to know? 
If, uh, if I looked at chapter 24, verses 1 through 35, and I could talk to Luke and I said, Luke, what do you want us to get out of this? I think Luke would want us to say, uh, it's not enough to know intellectually that the tomb is empty. We all knew the tomb was empty. That didn't change the thing. It was, it's not enough to intellectually know that the tomb is empty. It wasn't enough for the two to know the tomb was empty. It wasn't enough for Peter to know that the tomb was empty. And it's not enough for us to know that the tomb is empty. What he wants us to realize that what is important is that we need to have an encounter with Jesus Christ. We need to have an encounter with Jesus Christ through the Scriptures. And our hearts can be strangely warmed when we do that. And we need to have an encounter with Jesus at the supper table. His last verse there, verse 35 said, they told how He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Do you see that? In the breaking of the bread. Jesus took the bread and He broke it and He blessed it. That phrase, took the bread, broke it, and blessed it, is a phrase that is used over and over again in the book of Acts to describe the Lord's Supper. And I'm afraid our churches, just as we don't put as enough emphasis on baptism as we should, we sort of make, we say baptism is important, but let me tell you, it's much more important than we make it. We don't put the emphasis that we should on the meal. Because what we should be doing when we have the Lord's Supper is we should recognize that the Lord Jesus is there. And we should be we should be inviting Jesus into our Lord's Supper. And in the breaking of the bread, we should know Jesus. We should have an encounter with Jesus Christ. Now, evangelical churches sort of have stayed away from this kind of, kind of stuff because it sounds too sacramental. It sounds like, well, that's the, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament and it has to do with salvation. No, it just means that God makes Himself uh, he, he draws near to us in a special way in the Lord's Supper. Uh, you remember Revelation 3.20? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Do you know that verse? Uh, that verse doesn't deal with salvation. Uh, that verse is addressed to the church at Laodicea. He's talking to a church. I'm standing at the door of that church and I'm knocking. If anyone will open the door and let me in to that church. And when the church met, by the way, they were usually having a supper. If anyone will open the door and let me in, I will come in and I will what? Do you know what the next word is? I will have a supper with him. I will dine with him. I'll eat a dinner with him. That is the invitation. He wants us to open the door and invite him in like these people did at our mealtime in the church setting. It's the Lord's Supper. And when we do that, we should be having an encounter with Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to know that the one thing is that if intellectually knowing that the tomb is empty is not enough, that's head knowledge is not enough. Then the issue is a heart matter. Isn't it? It's a heart matter. They were slow of heart. Their hearts were turned to blaze. What's the scripture say? You confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and you believe in your what? Heart that God raised you from. Look, not that the tomb's empty. You believe where? In your heart. See, that's, that's a heart matter. What, Christ, what Luke wants us to say is, Jesus is alive. We know it from the Scripture. We know it because He appeared there at the meal. And now what He wants is a heart commitment from us. If He is alive, 
guess what? Our hearts should be ablaze and we should be out there telling people. See, we should be very excited. So I think that's what Luke wants us to know. And then next week what we'll see is that Jesus then starts appearing to the other script, to the other disciples. Look at verses 36 through 43. He appears to his disciples. And then in verses 44 through 49, guess what he does again? He opens the scriptures to them. The same two things that he did in verses 13 through 35, he will do again with the wider crowd. And then in verses 50 through 53, he will ascend into heaven and he will take his position on the throne at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he will institute a kingdom that is presently in existence. Not here in its fullness. That happens when he comes back and he sets up the millennium. But he institutes a present aspect of the kingdom uh, that most evangelicals are really foggy on, which we will get into next week. We'll finish up Luke next week. Okay? <clears throat> Father, we thank you that uh, we can take a scripture like this. We can uh, dissect it. We can think about it. We can evaluate it. Uh, we can evaluate our own lives in light of this. Lord, some of us have a totally intellectual understanding of Christianity, and that's a good start. It's important. You've told us to come, let us reason together. And we need to use our intellectual faculties. But Lord, we need a heart commitment. And we need to have an experience with you. Some of us understand things intellectually. We have a great theology. But our hearts aren't ablaze for you. We act as if you don't even exist. We go on our daily lives as if you don't exist. Uh, Lord, help us to, to, be, to burn for you. Help us to be disciples that are excited uh, about the fact that you're alive. Help us to be uh, living testimonies of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.